Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is David Bernstein, University Professor of Law at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Macy University and Executive Director of the Liberty and Law Center. He is the author of many books. The latest is Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Welcome to Free Thoughts, David. Thanks, Trevor. So is this book, do we think about racial classifications that we have learned about throughout American history, the big ones being uh, slavery, of course, and then later Jim Crow. Is is this the kind of racial classification you're talking about in this book? So the book really focuses on the post-World War II era. Everyone sort of knows that we have uh, an unpleasant uh, and disturbing history of racial classification uh, before the Civil Rights era, the Jim Crow South, where they uh, had to decide whether someone was a uh, sufficiently black to be subject to anti-miscegenation laws or to school segregation or laws that excluded Asian people. We had to decide who was Asian and who wasn't. And most people think that while we still have racial classifications boxes we check off, that these boxes are basically a subject to self-identification. They're not really official. They're kind of informal. But it turns out that actually those boxes that you check when you apply for a mortgage or to college or register your kid for school are actually based on official uh, guidelines, uh, rules really, by the federal government that were enacted in the mid to late 1970s. And they do have official definitions. And some people uh, do have their uh, self-identity rejected or at least questioned. And sometimes they even get penalized for putting down the quote-unquote wrong race. As reading, reading the book, because I've known you for a long time, I found myself wondering what led you to write this book? Or more specifically, was there some research you were doing in another area that you suddenly found these strange racial classifications in American law that most people don't actually know about? So I sort of had this in the back of my mind for a long time, because when I was doing research for a book I wrote for Cato over 20 years ago, uh, You Can't Say That, I came across a case involving two uh, white firefighters in Boston who failed their test to become firefighters and then uh, took it again, this time putting down that they were black to take advantage of an affirmative action legal settlement. And eventually, when they applied for promotion, their blackness was questioned and they were eventually fired. They sued. Uh, they were union members. So they went to a arbitration. And the Massachusetts courts eventually set out criteria for what makes you black or not and said that here are a bunch of ways that we could recognize you as black. You don't meet any of these. And I always had in the back of my mind whether there were other cases like that. That case was always depicted in the literature as the only case along those lines. I said, that would be really strange because so many government contracts, university admissions, and so forth are influenced by what race you put down. Surely there have been other cases where people have uh, questioned this uh, and there have been adjudications. Another thing that happened... Well, two other incidents that happened around the same time, both involving sort of Hispanic classifications. We had a president of our university named Angel Cabrera. He was a white guy from Spain, but Spanish people are considered Hispanic, or at least it seemed like they were considered Hispanic because he portrayed himself as a Hispanic president of George Mason University. He was on the cover of you know some diversity in higher education magazine. And that was kind of odd because what makes him a minority, that he's diverse, but if he had been from Italy, he's literally from Spain. He was born in Spain, went to school in Spain, then came here for grad school. What makes him a minority, but say not someone from Italy or Afghanistan or uh, or Armenia or Greece? 
So that was sort of uh, interesting to me. I sort of thought it would be worth looking into. And also I had a nanny who was from Peru. I helped her apply for a green card. And when she filled out the application, first it asks, as these forms tend to, were you Hispanic or not? And she had, that was easy. She said yes. But then they asked you for your race. And she said, what do I put down? And I said, you know, are you in Spanish? Well, in Spanish, are you white? She goes, no, I'm not white. I said, well, you're not black. She says, no, I'm not black. I am mestizo. Mestiza, actually, she would have said. Uh, and which, you know, mixed Spanish, uh, white, that's what they say in Latin America. And there was, of course, no classification for her. Uh, and the class, so I said, oh, you know, we have these real weird idiosyncrasies in American racial classification, ethnic classification that we just don't sort of think about. That hey, there's no real classification for mixed race people from Latin America. By the way, you think, oh, what about the American Indian classification? Because of lobbying from American Indian groups, only North American Indians, not including Mexico, are included. If you're from Latin America, if you're 100% Inca or whatever, you're still not. Indian is according to our rules. So I said, and we have this weird thing where if you're a European from Spain, you're a member of a minority group, but if you're European from somewhere else, you're not. And I started looking into it and I discovered that the federal government has its own classifications. There's a general rule from the Office of Management and Budget that's followed by the vast majority of agencies, but the Department of Transportation has slightly different rules. So for example, they consider Portuguese people and Brazilians to be Hispanic, but the government generally does not. Different states have different, uh, slightly different rules. Some They generally follow federal rules, but they may define Hispanic differently or they may define Asian differently or they may include Portuguese or not Portuguese or Portuguese may be a separate classification. Um, so I thought, for first I wrote a law review article about the history of how these classifications came to be and how they're enforced. And in the course of writing that article, I discovered not much to my surprise that that one case involving the firefighters was one of a several dozen along those lines. That's just merely the one that people have paid attention to. But there are a lot of other state, federal, and often administrative agency cases where especially people applying for government contracts would have, for example, an Anglo-sounding name, but they put down Hispanic, so then they're Hispanic, this would be questioned, and then agencies or courts had to adjudicate, are you really Hispanic? Some people might be wondering, well, you know, if if someone is coming from a conservative or a libertarian background who opposes racial classifications at all, that the, the reason for writing this book is to sort of go after the existence of racial classifications, that you're, that you're against them. And we won't get into like the whole question about that. But I think one of the more interesting things about your book is that it it's not that way. It, it actually discusses how much this stuff matters and even if you're for racial classifications, affirmative action, you know, minority business preferences, this still poses very vexing problems that the government is pretty bad at doing it, like it's bad at so many other things. Sure. So what I say in the last chapter of the book, so the book is not, for example, just an attack on affirmative action. Of course, you have to talk about affirmative action to some degree if you're going to talk about racial classifications, because that's where a lot of the controversy arises. Uh, but I say, you know, when you're, if you want, I mean, generally, I generally take the position that we should have a lot fewer racial classifications. But if we are going to find a need to classify people by race, you really need to think about well, what is the object? What are we trying to achieve? And then are the classifications we're using uh, tailored to actually achieve those goals? So, for example, I've mentioned government contracting, the original basis for minority preferences of government contracting was primarily to help African-Americans who had been excluded from 
government contracts by racism and uh, old boy networks and so forth to compete. So we uh, added minority preferences. We didn't really, at the time, there weren't that many other groups out there, but in the ensuing 50 or so years, we've had a huge amount of immigration from South America, uh, Mexico, Asia, and all those groups qualify just as much. You qualify, if you are a person who came over here from India five years ago, have become a citizen, you get exactly the same preference for a government contract as if you're great-great-grandparents were slaves, and uh, after that, uh, they were subject to Jim Crow in the South. And that and it doesn't really make any sense. There's, I've never seen anyone really explain or justify why a recent immigrant should be uh, qualified for these programs. And I say, you know, in medical research, the government has required uh, medical researchers who get any kind of government funding under government supervision, like the FDA, to uh, make sure they have enough subjects of different minority groups. And you can argue there's reasonable arguments on both sides whether trying to divide research subjects uh, to get a broader diversity of genetics, for example, is a worthwhile, whether the opportunity costs are worthwhile. But what isn't really debatable, it seems to me, is that the classification is like adopting the crude classifications that were invented for completely other purposes uh, makes any sense. So just to give two examples, we use they have to have enough. Uh, as researchers have to have enough Hispanics. Hispanics is not a race. There's no genetic commonality among them. They could be any combination of European, African, indigenous, Asian, and origin. And you, so you could have, so it's sort of like saying American, right? Well, we have to have Americans in the group. Well, what, what would that tell you? Or in the Asian classification, we classify people anywhere from India to Filipinos as being uh, Asian. So you could do a study on a thousand Indians and say, I've covered the Asian base and the government would accept that, but I really would, but there's no genetic, particular genetic commonality between people from India who are Caucasians and people from say China. So it actually, even if you assumed, I think somewhat heroically that you would expect there to be some potentially some different results between people who are ethnographically East Asian and Europeans, the classification we use doesn't even require you to do that. You could just as easily use Austronesians or Caucasians who happen to be within the Asian classification. Uh, so there are a lot of examples like that. Um, even things that seem as simple as the African-American classification, there's controversy, including within the African-American community now, as to what extent is that classification really meant to include recent immigrants and their children and grandchildren from Nigeria or from Jamaica? Or what about someone who marries uh, a, a a person of European descent, their child is uh, now half African-American, they tend to have actually better socioeconomic um, statistics and people who are uh, have two African-American parents, should they be included? And these decisions, the decision in that case, what basically the way the rules are written is anyone who has any African-American ancestry at all can claim to be African-American. And that decision was made without any real public discussion or debate. And one could argue, well, even people of African descent who aren't, you know, descendants of slaves or want to suffer enough discrimination, want them to be represented. But we've never really had a public discussion about this. And there's certainly sentiment both in the African-American community and otherwise that to the extent we do have affirmative action preferences, it should be reserved for those who've suffered generations of discrimination in the U.S., not simply because you happen to be uh, someone, you know, your dad was the ambassador from Kenya and he decided to stay in the United States after high school. You mentioned where they where they came from, and of course, your book goes back to before uh, the Directorate fifteen or Directive fifteen. Um, but we've been interestingly stuck with 
in many ways, Directive 15. So, so can you talk a little bit about that and where it came from and, and what its categories are? Sure. So um, after World War II, when the civil rights movement was really taking off and there was revulsion at the Holocaust and you know racially based genocide, and you know, of course, we don't think in the United States of Jews being a separate race, but the Nazis did. So it was, to them, it was racial. Uh, there was a strong inclination uh, among liberal forces in society to do away with the racial classifications altogether, which is what Canada did, at least for a time. But then the problem arose, and this was a legitimate problem. Uh, we started in, um, enacting first executive orders banning discrimination by government contractors, then major pieces of civil rights legislation, legislation like the 64 Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. How do you ensure in some way that the regulated businesses, the government contractors, the big employers who are regulated by the Civil Rights Act, the local voting registrars in Mississippi, how do you ensure they're not discriminating if you can't measure it, if you have no way of knowing who's being discriminated against or who is and what the statistics are? So the governments, you know, when they started giving out forms, they said, okay, um, let's take African-Americans and maybe Jews and Mexicans. And you know, they started with that, and then over time, it gradually uh, morphed into, oddly enough, uh, me- uh, basically recapitulating the sort of traditional racist ca- categories back from the 19th century anthropology. They sort of dropped Jews, and they added Asians, and they added Native Americans, and they added a Mexican American. The, Mex- the Mexican category morphed into a Hispanic category, so we basically wound up with like black, white, brown, red, and yellow. Uh, the uh, traditional like you know racist color scheme, uh, but it was well intentioned. It wasn't meant to recapitulate the old racist things. It was a combination of, of a few factors. One is that African American civil rights groups were quite adamant that groups like Jews or Italian Americans who were white ethnics should uh, not be included, and the other groups didn't for the most part, fight back on that. The second thing that uh, was just sort of an ideological point, well, if color is the big dividing line in American society, we should be looking to see which groups are sort of analogous to African-Americans in the sense of being discriminated against based on color. But the third thing, and something I think I under-emphasize in my book, but I've thought about it more later, is that there was a strong norm back in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s that you were not supposed to ask someone what their race, religion, or anything else was. So if you're going to monitor discrimination, like if a government contractor is going to report data to the government, how many minority employees do we have? The only ones that you could really report are ones who are visibly look different. So this would include people with African descent, it would include uh, uh, East Asians, uh, it would include uh, at least some Native Americans, less assimilated probably, who have less intermarriage. And it would also include not all Hispanics, but people who quote-unquote look Hispanic, right? Darker-skinned uh, people. So that's how we started. And then um, we, we mentioned Directive 15. So Directive 15 is the rule that the federal government passed in 1977 that sort of formalized these stats. And basically they... Uh, what happened was, as we continued with the ver- enforcing the various civil rights laws and we were encouraging academic research funded by the government on how a different group's doing, government agencies found that they were getting data that didn't match each other. Uh, so one government agency uh, within the Health Education Welfare Department might have a classification 
for Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. Another might have Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and Cubans. Another might have Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, and other people of Spanish-speaking uh, descent. Another might have Spanish surname. Another might have Spanish-speaking uh, household, and so forth and so on. They were getting uh, that that didn't match. And some agencies were using a criteria for other minority groups like Cajuns in Louisiana or Portuguese in Massachusetts. So uh, Cap Weinberger, who is at the time the head of Hugh Health Education Welfare, said we have to regularize these statistics. Um, what do we do about Hispanics was sort of an interesting question because they had traditionally been seen as white, but there was a, but there was a Chicano movement saying, no, we're really brown. And plus, Richard Nixon thought it was important to have a separate Hispanic classification for various political reasons, which I go into the book. And perhaps most important, a particular congressman who was Mexican-American got Congress to pass a law saying you must have a separate uh, classification for people of Spanish-speaking descent. Another issue was, uh, should people from South Asia, like Indians, Pakistanis, should they be considered white, which was the norm at the time, or should we put them into the Asian classification or some political jockeying over that. But the long and the short of it is, this was done, it wasn't a secret, it wasn't done in some sort of conspiratorial way, but because really the only impl official implications were this is just how the government's going to keep statistics, it, it wasn't, it, the, the, the effect this was going to have on American society wasn't well recognized, there wasn't a lot of public discussion, there was very little debate, it was done very haphazardly. So for the Hispanic classification, for example, the government literally asked for volunteers from a few agencies. They wanted one Puerto Rican, one Cuban, and one Mexican-American. They found three government employees who volunteered, one from each group. They sat them down in a room together and said, come up with what the classification is and how to define it. And they went back and forth. There was a disagreement, but they finally settled on Hispanic. They could have done Latino, for example. Latino would have included Brazilians, but it wouldn't have included Spaniards. Instead, they went with Hispanic, which includes Spaniards and not Brazilians. A lot of, you know, some of the Chicano activists were upset. They said, well, why are we going back to Spain? Spain's the oppressor, right? But this was not, but this was not what this committee, subcommittee happened to decide. So it was done, you know, pretty much um, without all that much thought, both because it wasn't thought, thought that was going to have that much impact, but also we do have to remember that by in the mid-70s still, we mostly had a black-white binary in the United States. We had overwhelming majority of white Americans, a European descended Americans or Middle Eastern descended Americans, a minority of Black Americans, and a few percentages of less than ten percent altogether of Asian, Hispanic, uh, Native Americans. So no one thought that it was, no one paid that much attention to what was going on. No one really expected the huge wave of immigration we've had since then. No one expected to have so much uh, intermarriage, uh, interracial marriage, interethnic marriage, where we have a lot of people who have now mixed ancestry whose status is kind of unclear. But the long and the short of it is once these classifications came into being and there were some advantages presented, they very quickly became affirmative action categories, even though they officially said were, these are not meant to be uh, determined eligibility for any program. Once, people, once these classifications ossified and advantages came around to them, not surprisingly, interest groups formed around them to protect them and to uh, ensure that they kept them this way. So it's been very difficult to make any changes because, for example, Native Hawaiians at some point became upset and they said, hey, wait a second, we're put into the Asian and Pacific Islander category, but we actually have pretty low um, average socioeconomic indicators. We should be considered an oppressed minority. We were colonized and so forth. 
And they said, let put us in the same classification with Native Americans and uh, Alaska Natives. Whether you, you know, maybe Native American tribes isn't quite the right analogy, but the Alaska Natives seems like a pretty close analogy. But the existing Native American group said, we don't want to share the resources of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So no way. So they uh, said, okay, we'll just make us a separate group entirely. And the government said, well, there's too few of you to really make that viable. So eventually they, they said, okay, we'll just make a new classification, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. But Pacific Islanders won't include uh, Filipinos, even though they are literally from Pacific Islands and more genetically related to Polynesians and to other Asians, because the Asian groups wanted to keep Filipinos because they're a large constituency, and the Native Hawaiians didn't really want Filipinos in their group. So that was one example. Of, uh, so that was the compromise that was made. Native American, Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, uh, that classification is not especially coherent itself, but uh, that's one of the very few changes. Uh, you know, the other changes have been on the surface, like the category was originally, I think, Black slash Negro, now it's Black slash African American. The Hispanic classification, the definition hasn't changed, but now it's Black slash Hispanic. There was a question when African immigration picked up, should the OMB consider them to be African American or put them in a separate class? And they said they just wrote a little memo saying, we're just going to keep them in the same group without any real explanation. But uh, the long and the short of it is that anytime you try to make uh, any kind of changes, as to what these groups, uh, how you define these groups, you will run into, uh, you, you might be able to expand the groups. Like the Asian classification in various agencies has been expanded to include groups that simply weren't thought about because we didn't really have a lot of Mongolians or Malaysians 50 years ago. Now we have some. Uh, but other than that, um, because uh, the, I did, the groups had, like, just for example, there's some tension within uh, Hispanic, among Hispanic activists, should people who are really white uh, who are of European origin really um, be included in that classification. But all the Hispanic groups in the United States, uh, or almost all of them, are, ba are based on the notion that everyone of Spanish-speaking origin is Hispanic. We're all like one group. They don't want to give it up. And if you look at pictures of leaders of a lot of Hispanic groups, a lot of them, at least by appearance, seem to be primarily, if not entirely, European origin. So they're not going to give up the notion that they're Hispanic. So in other words, this is uh, it's not really any different than any other government program that has sort of uh, proven um, – to have uh, to be somewhat obsolete and to have outlived the, the original intention uh, that they can, that you have interest groups that form around them it becomes very difficult for anyone to modify them and there's unless there's a really strong reason to uh, politically to overcome uh, the status quo the status quo just stays the way it is that's what I thought was the most sort of interesting meta point about your book was that political economy as you pointed out you can create different government programs that are maybe not that popular when they're created, but if you create a constituency around it by virtue of the government program doing it, it may be impossible to take away. And it's not always, like some groups want to keep the expansive definition for various purposes, but sometimes there's a tension that works the other way. You point out that on African Americans, if you're looking at welfare statistics, uh, immigrant Africans, so people with black skin but are are not descendants of slaves who often do better socioeconomically than people who are descendants, descendants of slaves, um, if you include them in the category, it could look like the category is doing better for some programs than it would like socioeconomically better. But if you take them away, you make the category smaller, which could affect, say, 
the Congressional Black Caucus and the Voting Rights Act. And so there's not always a, a pull to like expand or contract. There's forces that go both ways, correct? Sure. Uh, and one of the oddities to me, I mean, it's really sort of, uh, in some ways, almost ruined my ability to consume the news without constantly you know, being annoyed because you're constantly seeing statistics being presented in ways that, you know, they're all the incentives for research uh, are, you know, first of all, the government sometimes requires you to use the classifications like in medical research. But even when they don't, um, because the government, for example, in the education context requires public schools, universities, and so forth to gather these particular statistics, if you're a researcher, you go with the data you have. So you'll see these statistics that say Hispanics are doing the following. It's like, really? I mean, because what does that really tell me? Because, you know, without claiming you know, sociological expertise, I know enough to know that even Mexican-Americans in Texas are different in a variety of ways than Mexican-Americans in California. But then imagine just, for example, uh, Cuban-Americans in Miami who live in the city of Miami versus recent Puerto Rican migrants who are working in uh, agriculture in central Florida. Like these two groups really have nothing in common except that we sort of arbitrarily put them into the same classification. And if you just sort of average them together, say, how are Hispanics in Florida doing? You're not really getting uh, a good picture of either, right? Because assumably the farm workers are averaging down the income and educational status and the Cuban Americans are averaging it up, but you're not really getting the right thing for so so for either. So when I said, again, if you're going to have classifications, you should be thinking about what they're being used for. We use these things for research, but for sociological research, anthropological research, economic research, you really want to figure, you know, you really, you really would want to be much more finely tuned and figure out, okay, let's look at uh, subgroups like Native Americans. You have, a, you have stats from Native Americans, but you have some people who are living on the Hopi reservation who've, you know, who've been there for generations, you know, now for several generations. Uh, and you have very little economic or educational opportunity. You have other people who check Native American, but maybe they're 132nd Cherokee. And they all count, you know, as long as they put that down when you do the survey research. But just, again, averaging those two groups is not going to give you any useful data. It's going to actually obscure more than illuminates. And, you know, and relatedly, you know, we've come to accept that, you know, we most of us don't think about it anymore. We just hear things like Hispanic. We just sort of accept it. But it really is totally artificial. Um, Asians is an even better example. So, again, everyone from India to the Philippines, uh, most people who are surveyed who are in the classification of Asian American, about 62% of them say they don't accept the identity at all. So they don't even think of themselves even as a secondary identity as Asian American. But you'll you know, I'll listen to NPR, uh, or when I was listening to NPR during the 2020 election, they had like a week where they're basically saying, we're going to talk about the Asian American vote in 2020. And I said to myself, as I'm finishing my book, well, this is going to be interesting because there is no such thing, right? And it turns out that when they said that they'd say that, they'd say, today we continue our series about the Asian American vote. We are here today at the Chinese American Democratic Club of San Francisco. And the next day, we're here at the Korean uh, uh, political caucus of South Carolina. And of course, because there are no Asian political groups in that sense. I mean, there are a few groups that so identified, but as far as like grassroots political organizing, it will almost always be done on an ethnic basis, right? Because Koreans don't think of themselves as being the same as Pakistanis, they don't think of themselves as being the same as Filipinos, right? There's no reason that they would uh, all be one. Now, for East Asians, you could at least say, well, maybe they all face the same sort of discrimination because whites don't 
distinguish among them. But that, even that doesn't work for the Asian classification because surely, even if you're a fairly ignorant uh, American uh, from the from like a place with that's not very diverse, you could tell the difference between someone from Pakistan or India compared to someone from uh, China or Japan, right? Yeah, you, know, you may dislike one group but not the other, or you may just like all, dislike all foreigners, but it has nothing to do with them being all you know Asian. Now I'm about as white as can be, although again, the, the, even that category is is very unclear. But uh, I can definitely trace uh, trace part of my ancestry back to Jamestown. But I do did have a great grandpa who was Italian, born in Italy, came over uh, in the early 20th century. Now a lot of people might be thinking, well, what about this idea that Italians weren't white, or Irish would be this question weren't white, which you kind of push back on a little bit. But there are some interesting questions about types of discrimination faced by people who present as white-skinned, like Polish and Italians, that nevertheless was meaningful and is not really accounted for in our discrimination laws. Yeah, I mean, the people who say they weren't white are using a really stylized, modern definition of white, meaning fully accepted. I actually just uh, wrote something on Twitter about this because I was thinking about it more. And I think what, if you wanted to say what they what is really meant when you say that Irish or Polish or Jewish or Italian immigrants weren't considered white, what they really was saying is they weren't considered, not only were they not considered fully American, they were considered potentially unassimilable. They'll never be real Americans. Not because they weren't white, but because they uh, had various religious and ethnic attributes that were considered uh, undesirable and unassimilable into American life. Uh, so that, so when I say that they really were considered white, that doesn't mean that they didn't face a tremendous amount of hostility and discrimination at various times. As I point out in the book, uh, in the late, by the late 1960s, early 70s, you could go to uh, Chicago, which, which had like a 25% Polish population, and look at the uh, CEOs and high-level executives at Chicago companies and not find anyone, really, of Polish background. Uh, same thing, you know, Italian Americans had of all the um, non-black uh, ethnic groups had among the worst uh, socioeconomic indicators as of the late '60s. They were sort of trapped often in manual labor positions. Even Jewish Americans were generally economic economically successful uh, as late as the early '70s. It, when they surveyed um, banking, the banking industry, you know, Jews are supposed to be uh, great at bank with money, right? So uh, stereotypically, you say, oh, it's dominated by Jews, whatever, but actually there are almost no Jews. Like there's like one Jewish bank executive uh, out of like 175 that was surveyed in a city that was 25, 30% Jewish, where Jews had a lot of education and so forth. So there's clearly a lot of discrimination. And when these classifications were being implemented in the 60s and 70s, there was some pushback saying, well, why should, say, Mexicans or Puerto Ricans be included, but not, say, Italians or Poles or other white ethnic groups? And again, part of it was just the convenience of being able to look at someone and more or less determine what group they're from. But part of it was, again, ideological that um, that whatever other disadvantages these groups faced, they had so-called white skin privilege. I thought that was a new term, but I found it used even back in the 70s. Uh, and therefore, they should be uh, in a separate category. But, you know, um, today, uh, one can make the argument 
at least with regard to recent immigrants, that hey, whatever color of skin people have now, if they're if they've been immigrants in the United States since the 1960s, they've been protected by civil rights laws. Certainly, society today is a lot more tolerant in general of minority groups than it was in the past. And there are people who are being classified as members of oppressed minority groups who face a lot less discrimination in their family history in the U.S. than other than white ethnic groups who uh, never got officially classified as minorities. On the other hand, you and you could but on the other hand you could say, you know, one lesson maybe is that we don't even really typically look at people we consider white and even think about their ethnic origins anymore. I mean, it's almost as late as the mid-80s when Justice Scalia was being appointed to the Supreme Court, there was some discussion. It wasn't a huge deal, but it was considered a big political plus that he was the first Italian-American justice. Now DeSantis is considered a very likely presidential candidate, maybe a future president, and his Italian background almost never comes up. It's barely... I, I, I actually saw some discussion on Twitter recently about whether we should consider DeSantis uh, to be a minority because of his Cuban background. It's like, wait a second, he's not Cuban. He's People don't even know that he's uh, Italian. So, you know... Um, there is a certain case to be made in that sense for maybe benign neglect, like when you we did not officially classify people as minorities and they wound up assimilating at least into the general white population. And maybe uh, the less we classify people uh, by race, the more likely we are to achieve uh, a common American identity than if we officially tell people you're members of different groups. It makes some sense, though, as you point out, like different uh, interest groups of these different racial classifications will sometimes complain. And I think with justification that some version of that group is either not being discriminated against because they don't look like the group, which would be, say, white Spanish people born in Spain or of Spanish descent who uh, are getting Hispanic status. And so that we should be looking at phenotype more than genes and saying, you know, how does this person present? Because racism in its sort of ugly incarnation is this kind of classification based on, well, you look like X, therefore we're going to deny you Y or do something to you. So should that be the way that these categories go, looking at what actually happens to people based on how they are treated, based on, unfortunately, how they look? So one suggestion that someone posed to me at one point was that you could actually ask people instead of what race you are is to say, do you have reason to believe based on your appearance that you that you face discrimination, which would, uh, you know, the problem is I don't think we have a strong norm about that. So I think there'd be a lot more fraud and misrepresentation in that case. But if we had started with that to begin with, and that was the norm, that might've been a better solution. What we, I think, don't want to do. So in Brazil, they started affirmative action Later than we did, they can, but and they are, they have, you know, they traditionally had something like 86 or something crazy different classifications from like fully white to fully black and everything in between. Uh, and they face the question of where the cutoff should be. And, uh, you know, and there's, there are cases where people who are siblings, one was determined to be black and one not, but what they eventually started doing was giving guidance to. Like if you apply to the university, that the people who you're applying to should actually like measure your nose width and how curly your hair is and that sort of thing. And you know, 
I'm not Brazilian. I don't know how this goes over here, but I've not yet encountered anyone who thinks, yeah, what we really want to do is be taking out a ruler and looking, you know, maybe take out the calipers, you know, for the head and figuring out, hey, you are ethnographically part of this group. We, we, and we also don't want, although it might be a more, in some ways, more effective for discrimination purposes, we also don't really want someone pulling out a color palette and saying, well, you're only light beige, right? So you don't count. Uh, and it gets even more complicated because, you know, people, Hispanic activists will say, well, I may be a white Hispanic, my last name is Lopez. And when people see my name on a resume, they don't know if I'm brown or white or yellow or anything else. So they may just assume that I'm a member of the other group. So there are a lot of uh, complications uh, in this regard. But, I, you know, my own um, feeling about this, at least with regard to affirmative action, which I express at the end of the book, is the two groups that we could say really have suffered generations of government hostility, the two groups that are not post-1960, primarily post-1965 immigrants and are not of European descent, are Native Americans and African and American African Americans who are descendants of slaves. And Native Americans, I don't want to include all Native Americans because it's a such, you know, there are a lot of, I have a whole chapter about how we determine who is officially Native American, but the long and the short of it is for things like the census or checking off boxes, there are a lot of people who essentially, you said like, you're just like a regular white guy, who live their lives like a regular white person in the sense that they don't really have any cultural or other ties, but they just happen to have inherited uh, tribal membership, let's say, from like the Cherokee are very liberal about tribal membership. There's at least one person in the United States who's one five thousand two hundred and thirty eighth Cherokee, but his great 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 grandfather or whatever was Cherokee, so he counts as a tribal member. Can't even go by tribal membership. So I would sort of say let's limit it to let's start off at least by limiting uh, our classifications for affirmative action if we think we need to engage in it to uh, descendants of slaves, American slaves, and to Native Americans who live on reservations, because you know that uh, they're not, they're, they have really suffered the brunt of the discrimination as opposed to someone who happens to have, you know, one, you know, who's Elizabeth Warren or someone who has vague, maybe real, maybe not so real ancestry, may identify that for uh, purposes of getting a job or so forth. And the, to me, that's not, there's two advantages. One is limiting things to the groups that really have suffered the most, but also uh, arguably, at least, while those classifications correlate with race, they're not actually racial classifications. So in other words, I'm not saying anyone who's black gets a preference. You have to be a descendant of American slaves. Um, if you actually are a white descendant, uh, you know, you're a very vague, you know, lengthy ancestry. You know, our norms would say you just don't check it, just like our norms now say you wouldn't check that you're black, right? Uh, and if you're Native American, it's not that you have some Native American so-called blood, it's rather that uh, you actually live on a reservation, and therefore we know that you know, you've suffered generationally from government oppression. So based on Supreme Court precedent, one could argue, again, that while these are correlated with racial categories, they're actually political classifications that don't raise the same constitutional concerns about the government dividing people or classifying people by race. And I think they also you know, lead to less concern that the government is, in fact, uh, se segregating people in a variety of ways, classifying them by race, and thereby um, in interfering with what seems to be a very strong undercurrent of intermarriage and assimilation in the United States. Which is a good thing, as you said, we get to the point where so many of these categories don't even, they think of themselves as white um, after a few generations or maybe even after one generation, uh, but they can check different boxes. Now, it seems 
you know, an admirable goal to try and when we think about why we have minority business owned business preferences to focus on people who've actually experienced oppression. Uh, but I mean, are you, as we talked about, these are very persistent categories and there's a lot of people who can game the system and they do, especially when it comes to minority business preferences, for example. Um, do we see an ability to do this better? For example, and I, this is probably a bad idea, but we have 23andMe now. We have DNA tests. Um, people are finding out that they have different ancestry than they did. Uh, we might be able to get that more granular and say, well, you know, they have definitely oppressed ancestry, uh, and we know this. So, I mean, is that better? Uh, is, is is there is there something that is coming that we could make this work better than, than what it has in the past? Yeah, I don't think we want to go to a genetic test for. Various reasons, uh, <laughs> but um, it's, it's affecting the debate, though, right? Even like, it, well, you know, it's 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 an interesting issue because the the way these classifications are defined, in particular the African American classification, is defined as anyone who is descended from, and this is a quote, the black races of Africa. So if you do a DNA test and you're Trevor Burris and you think of yourself as a white guy. But you do the DNA test that comes back saying you have 8% African ancestry. Uh, if you then choose to identify as African-American, you come within the legal definition. I mean, no one could say, you know, there, there are uh, – there's different levels of sort of problematic use of these classifications. One is, of course, outright fraud where someone just claims to be something they're not. But another is that someone – has does have does actually meet the legal definition of the classification, but is clearly not the sort of person. Yeah, I am not the sort of person who deserves any of that. Agreed. Well, I'll say for what deserves any that that was intended. Intended, and, yes. So, and this is comes up very early in my book. I talk about two separate cases from the Small Business Administration involving people who claimed to be members of the Hispanic classification, therefore should get preferences uh, under Small Business Administration rules. One of them did have Spanish grandparents, and she spoke Spanish, and she grew up speaking Spanish with with one, with one set of parents, one of her parents, her, her mom actually, her mom actually, but her maiden name was not Hispanic because it was her mom's family that was Spanish. Her married name, she didn't marry someone Hispanic, so her married name didn't sound Spanish. She had blonde hair and blue eyes, which is not you know, she's already of European origin, even on the Spanish side, so not that surprising. And the administrative law judges said, look, you're, you meet the technical definition, but this clearly wasn't meant for someone like you. It's meant for people who may have faced discrimination because they were Hispanic, and that excludes you. Another case, different small business administration judges, the first person to review the classification was someone who said, well, I'm a descendant of Sephardic Jews, Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492. Classification says anyone of Spanish origin, that makes me of Spanish origin. And they said, oh, no, you know, same rationale. You don't, you don't have a Spanish-sounding name, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then on appeal, the administrative law judge said, well, look, um, I don't care whether you face discrimination or not because of your Hispanic origins. If you look uh, at the statute, it says... Spanish origin of culture. I don't have any authority to decide who is sufficiently Hispanic. I, I only have authority, which I think is the correct answer under the statute. Maybe a bad statute, but the statute doesn't say you have to be Hispanic and be someone who may have suffered discrimination. It just says Spanish origin, therefore you are Spanish. Now, is he? does he deserve, you know, even if you think Hispanic should be covered, does, is she someone who's meant to? Well, uh, that this is a sort of problem with using these uh, crude classifications there. They, they tend to be quite... Uh, over-inclusive, 
And, you know, I think that, um, again, people weren't worried so much about it 50 years ago. We didn't have that many people who are minorities, who are not uh, black, and it was considered at the time that no one, you know, at the time was still sufficiently socially undesirable to be black in the general society. They, no one thought that people would pretend, although now, we, of course, we have some cases like that. Uh, and usually people think, oh, I could tell when someone kind of looks black. And, you know, you'd have a hard time passing yourself off as someone of African or, origin, so would I. Uh, although, of course, there are some people who, who you legitimately identify as African-American who happen to be fair-skinned and so forth. But in any event, it wasn't really considered that much of a concern. We have blacks, we have whites. We basically know who each group is, and we have a traditional one-drop rule anyone of African descent. But now we have people, you know, we have some, we have people who may be a quarter Chinese, a quarter Mexican, a quarter Irish, uh, and a quarter Native American. So what classification are they supposed to choose? Well, it's not going to benefit them for college admissions to choose Chinese. They probably won't. But you could have these – I wrote an amicus brief. I helped write an amicus brief for the current Supreme Court cases. I said, you know, you could have a case where someone has one Chinese parent, one Mexican parent. Uh, they're not trying to gain the system. So the Mex- so one kid identifies more with his Mexican side. He's really close to his Mexican grandma, and he puts down Mexican. And the other kid happens to be closer to his Chinese grandparents uh, and more identifies with that side. He went to a Chinese language school or whatever it may be. And so one puts down Asian, one puts down Latino they're, they're the, or Hispanic. They're exactly the same background, same parentage, same family. And one gets discriminated against because he's Asian. And the other gets favored because he's Hispanic. And that doesn't really make... Uh, any real sense either. But realistically, then, I mean, with that just being an example, affirmative action, but all the different classifications in federal law and regulations, we can't do away with these racial classifications. Correct? I mean, we realistically can't. Maybe we want to live in a post-racial society and maybe we're moving in that direction, as you pointed out, intermarriage, a bunch of people who can, who not sure of where they can classify themselves. Uh, but we can't, we have to just do it better rather than getting getting rid of it, correct? Well, you know, you could go the French way. The French prohibit that. There's two things in France. First of all, they prohibit the government from taking any kind of ethnic identi- uh, information about people on censuses or whatever. But there's also a very strong social norm that we don't, that we're all just Frenchmen, you know, uh, and we should not differentiate among ourselves. Now, that has some advantages, the obvious advantages of social cohesion and solidarity and uh, encouraging um, assimilation in a good way of, like, allowing minorities to become part of the French nation. It also has its uh, bad uh, uh, negative attributes, which is that um, you can't really, like, are North Africans in France being subject to discrimination? No one knows. I mean, we know they have lower socioeconomic indicators. Why is that? Well, no one studies that because no, it, it, because both the government and the private norms say you don't consider people's uh, backgrounds. Uh, so uh, same thing in the U.S. You could go to a system where we don't have any classifications at all, but I don't think we're prepared to do that because if you were to do that, things like the Voting Rights Act would just become uh, 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 you know, no, uh, no, because how do you, you, if you don't know who's voting or not, uh, you could have specific, you know, someone who gets turned away at the voting booth, you're black, we're not gonna let you vote. But that happens really rarely. Now, there are people who think this would be a good thing that we have too much statistical based anti discrimination laws that should all be, you really should have to prove that individualized discrimination. But clearly, it's sometimes like with voting, there are real patterns and practices that'd be hard to pinpoint 
a particular individual will be discriminated against directly, but there may be rules that were passed to try to effectuate discrimination, and you wouldn't be able to enforce those. And, and regardless of what I think or you think, I think society is not prepared to give up on enforcing laws in this way to ensure to keep these statistics. So yes, as long as we want to enforce civil rights laws more or less the way we've been enforcing them, we're going to have to have some sort of classifications. And in fact, while I think the classifications in general are quite accrued and non and overbroad and nonspecific, they're not terrible for the purpose for that purpose. Uh, you know, I think for example the Asian classification is way overboard even for that purpose, because you could easily imagine, for example, a Chinese employer discriminating against Indians or an Indian employer discriminating against Chinese, but they're all just Asians as far as the government's concerned. So you could tweak that somewhat. But for that, that was their original purpose. For their original purpose, just keeping track uh, of discrimination and so forth, it's not terrible. For almost any other purpose, it is terrible. Uh, so for almost any other purpose, we should either look to separating race and state. So for example, I think in the medical context, we should just abolish these rules entirely about because there's generally no medical reason. And the few exceptions where there are, uh, they're not exceptional enough to be worthwhile. Plus, they really inhibit us, even when you might find that African-Americans, for example, have a higher risk of X or this drug doesn't work the same way. Well, is it really African-Americans who are the issue? Or is it some subgroup who happen with some genetic uh, cluster from Western Africa, but it wouldn't apply, for example, to Ethiopians or Somalis. And we have no idea because we never look at that granular level. So I would abolish that entirely. For social science research, again, uh, we gather all these different subgroups together into um, into sort of a crude classification used for anti-discrimination purposes. But if you want to know how the Hopi tribe is doing or how the Sioux are doing or how a particular small tribe in Arizona is doing, you really need to study them. And you really need to break it up that way. You really just looking at Indians in general is not going to tell you. And, again, and in fact, you know, from a progressive point of view, it may, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you may actually um, be not noticing some real problems. So, you know, if you're looking at or sort of all Indians in Massachusetts or wherever, well, you're including the Foxwood Casino Indians who get all this revenue, you average them in with, you know, other ones. Are you really getting, you know, maybe it's covering up the fact that you have this huge Indian population that's living in poverty. You add Nigerian uh, immigrants to the African-American population. One thing, by the way, I didn't realize before I wrote this book, if you have asked me what percentage of African-Americans are uh, non-native born, I would have thought somewhere 5% or less. Turns out it's 10%. So if you include them and their children and their grandchildren, that's a very substantial percentage of the population. They have higher socioeconomic indicators, higher educational status, higher income than native born African Americans. You average them together with African Americans, it may give you a false picture of how the descendants of slaves who are, who are really think, thinking about trying to help, uh, trying to worry about how their progress in society, how they're doing. Uh, and you know, same with with all these groups. You're you're inc you're including diverse, internally diverse populations as a singular entity, and that is potentially obscuring problems specific to some of the subgroups. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. 
If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org. Thank you.